Now, brothers and sisters, take your Bible, if you would, and please turn with me to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28 is where I want to direct your attention this morning. While you're turning there, two things to note. One, I don't want to uh, fear I may neglect saying it later. It is the great uh, desire of the elders to pray with you and for you. And so at the end of the service, Jared Berge will be down here at the front. If you'd like to pray with somebody about anything, you can come down and talk to him. He'd be pleased to do that. And then secondly, uh, April 1st was the seventh anniversary, he just left the room, the seventh anniversary of Ryan Witherell as our worship coordinator. And uh, we give thanks to God for his uh, ministry in our uh, congregation. Now, Matthew chapter 28, verses uh, 16 through 20 is what I would like to read this morning. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age." We come again this morning to a very familiar passage, one of the most familiar passages in all of the Gospels. It's labeled the Great Commission, and it's one of the things that we think about often in our congregation. This is, in some ways, the capstone paragraph of the Gospel of Matthew. And if you've been around for a while, as we've walked through Matthew, you've heard me refer to this passage several times in the alls, the four alls that are in these verses that kind of form the theme of Matthew. Jesus has all authority. He tells us to go to all nations. He is worthy of all of our allegiance. We're we're to teach people to obey all of his commands. That's there. And then he is always with us. Now, some of you, it bothers you that I talk about the four alls and one of them is always. You think I'm cheating. And yet, in the original, the Greek uh, 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 copy of Matthew chapter 28 that we have, literally Jesus said, I am with you all the days, even to the end of the age. So I'm not cheating, so stop complaining. Uh, by, when we come to this paragraph here, this is the end of our study of the Gospel of Matthew. We started it in February of 2020. Uh, which was a little bit ago, and uh, I've lost track, but I think this is the 78th or 79th sermon from the Gospel of Matthew. You poor, long-suffering people. I sometimes tell friends of mine about this, about how we have been in Matthew for so long, and they kind of gape, and then I tell them that uh, uh, my pastor friends, that we spent 51 weeks in the book of Leviticus, and then they weep, and... uh, um, it, much more a credit to my ability to sustain a, ser- a series is your listening ability and your encouragement to me as we work our way, sometimes very slowly, through these books of the Bible. Haddon Robinson taught a lot of preachers in the 20th century, and he used to tell them that you should only, that no uh, congregation can endure a sermon series that lasts more than eight weeks. I'm a little bit off of that standard, but we'll continue walking through the scriptures. 
There are, when we come to this great commission, there are, there are believers, some, who argue that this commission here does not apply directly to us, we who are followers of Jesus. And the reason they, they make that claim is they say that Jesus here is speaking to Jewish followers before the church. The church hasn't yet started here in Matthew chapter 28. So this only, uh, this is more for them than for us. And they also say that Jesus was talking about the nations primarily around the Mediterranean, and in that sense, that work was done in the first century. So it, it uh, doesn't apply to us, and it's been fulfilled. We're going to talk about fulfillment in a minute, but there's a, a few things that, to think about here when we consider does this apply to us. It, it's true that Matthew, that, that this event in Matthew 28 is Jesus speaking to his disciples before the church. That's true. But the book it was written, Matthew was written for followers of Jesus who were in the church. And the authority for us is not so much in the event, but in the record of the event recorded by Matthew for us uh, as a congregation, as churches. Plus, uh, this is actually what the early church did in the book of Acts. We see them doing this commission. And he also said, Jesus said, Surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. If this is just for the disciples, how long did he expect these dear brothers to live? I'm with you to the end of the age. He did not say, I'm with you till you die. He said, I am with you to the end of the age, knowing that there would be eavesdropping followers of Jesus listening in who would need this assurance from the Lord Jesus. So we take up this commission. It's uh, uh, in letters on our back wall, and it used to be on our bulletins printed. What do we do as a congregation? Grace Baptist Church of Millersville cultivates followers of Christ. It's not in these new bulletin shells that we have or bulletin uh, papers. We'll have to add that the next time we get a new printing of them. Uh, cultivating followers of Christ is just a way of paraphrasing what this says here. I want to unfold this passage for you by making five observations about the text. I doubt very much that I'm going to say anything new to you about the Great Commission, but perhaps this morning I can remind you of some of the priorities that we have as a congregation, as followers of Jesus. So let's begin here. Number one, uh, five observations. The Great Commission connects to God's plans from the beginning. The Great Commission connects to God's plans from the beginning. I want to show you how this passage of Scripture connects to so many of the events and patterns and promises that have come before in the Bible. Um, here's some connections. We'll first think, think first about the connection between Jesus and Abraham. Jesus and Abraham. The Bible tells us in the book of Genesis, chapter 12, God called a moon worshiper who lived in what is now southern Iraq, uh, and, and God blessed him and promised him uh, thing, uh, this, these great promises that are recorded for us in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Uh, look at what it says. The Lord had said to Abram, he became Abraham, the Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse. And all peoples, here it is, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. 
that Abram is the, the nation that came from Abram is the Jewish people, the Israelites, the Hebrews. The Old Testament tells their story. But here at the end of Matthew chapter 28, we have this grand turn to all nations. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. The reason God called Abraham is so that eventually he might bless all peoples. We see that here in Matthew chapter 28. Then we can think of, well, uh, go out of historical order for a minute here, Jesus and Isaiah's servant. Jesus and Isaiah's servant. At the end of his prophecy, the long book of Isaiah, Isaiah devotes a lot of time prophesying about the servant who's going to come. The servant, God's great servant. And here is what God says to the servant. We think uh, a reference to the Messiah, the Lord Jesus. And Isaiah 42, 6 says, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles. God's promise to work through uh, the Messiah for all the people. Then Isaiah 49, 6. It is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. And Jesus says, go. Jesus and Isaiah's servant. Now we go back in time. Jesus and Joseph. Joseph was Abraham's great-grandson. We won't tell his story in great detail, but at the end of the book of Genesis, you know Joseph is there. Joseph is sold by his brothers into slavery because, uh, with the hope that he'll be gone from their lives forever. A great famine comes to the world, and Joseph, instead of languishing as a slave or languishing in prison, is exalted by God to the most powerful, second most powerful position in, in Egypt, the greatest nation on earth. The famine comes and Joseph's brothers come down to meet with him and <laughs> to, to get food, not expecting to meet Joseph. And Joseph stands before them, the brother they had sold to the Gentiles. He stands before them, resurrected as it were, and he calls them close and he says, let me tell you uh, that God put me in this position so I could save you and save everybody, in fact. And here in Matthew chapter 28, there are echoes of this. Jesus, who was sold by the Jews to the Gentiles over to death, has come back and has been appointed with great power over all of heaven and earth. And he draws his brothers, he called them that, he draws his brothers close and tells them about his plan to make the news that he has saved the world known to everybody. Then there's Jesus and Moses. Jesus and Moses. Moses, God's great prophet who on the mountaintop uh, gave or from the mountaintop delivered to the people God's commands. And here this passage says, Jesus met with his disciples on the mountain to give them a new command. Then Jesus and Joshua, Jesus and Joshua, look at Deuteronomy 31, 7 to 8. Then Moses summoned Joshua and said to him in the presence of all Israel, before they went to the promised land, be strong and courageous for you must go with this people into the land that the Lord swore to their ancestors to give them and you must divide it among them as their inheritance. The Lord himself goes before you and will be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Joshua is about to lead the Israelites into the promised land. 
uh, and they have with them the promise of God's presence. And here, Jesus is sending his own disciples out with the promise of his presence, I will be with you. They're not going to conquer the world like the Israelites conquered the land with an army. Instead, they're supposed to spread the good news of freedom from sin and death in Jesus. And then finally here, Jesus and Cyrus, Jesus and Cyrus, there is a striking resemblance between the end of the Gospel of Matthew and the end of the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament. In our Bible, the last book of the Old Testament in your Bible is Malachi, but in a Hebrew Bible, the Bible that the apostles would have used and Jesus would have read, the last book is 2 Chronicles. And I want, you, I want to read the last verse of 2 Chronicles and see if it sounds at all like this commission that Jesus gave. So look at 2 Chronicles chapter 36. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem and Judah. Any of his people among you may go up, and may the Lord their God be with them. Do you remember, we talked about this a little bit, how Matthew builds his book and, and shows how Jesus fulfills the life of Old Testament Israel? Matthew begins by saying, this is the beginning of Jesus the Messiah, just like Genesis 1. This is the beginning of the heavens and the earth. And then uh, uh, it, 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 you, you trace it out. Jesus, just like the Israelite people, went down to Egypt just like they came and walked through the water of the Red Sea, Jesus went into the waters of baptism. Just like they went into the wilderness and were tempted for 40 years, Jesus went into the wilderness and was tempted for 40 days. Just like, uh, um, uh, uh, oh, I lost my train of thought, but that's okay. We can keep going here. So uh, uh, just like they went, there it is, to the Mount Sinai and got the law, <laughs> the train appeared. Just like uh, they went to Mount Sinai to, to get the law, Jesus goes up on the Sermon on the Mount and delivers the, his commands, his great sermon to the people. Um, all the way through Matthew, there's this recapitulation, as it were, of the nation of Israel. And at the end of the Old Testament, Jerusalem, the city, is destroyed because of their sins. And at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is destroyed because of our sins. And at the end of 2 Chronicles, there is a king who arises who has been given his authority from God himself, and he orders that the temple be restored. And at the end of Matthew, there is the Lord Jesus with all this authority from his father, and he commands his disciples to go and build a people who Paul will call the temple, the new temple of the Holy Spirit. Do you see how these plans are coming together? This should fill you with a sense of, of, of wonder and of gratitude and joy. All of these promises and patterns, thousands of years that God has been sustaining these people and building these clues in there about what he's going to do. Now they're coming together in the life of his son, Jesus, God's great plans through his great risen son. It's amazing. And, and you are invited into these plans too. I'm not sure I should admit this, but when I was a child, I used to watch reruns of the A-Team on television. 
Remember that television show? So the A-team were a group of mercenaries, and if you were uh, being oppressed in some way or experiencing injustice, and if you could get a hold of them, you could call them and bring them to your town, and they would make a plan, and they would rescue you from your oppressors. And at the end of every episode, Hannibal Smith, who led the A-team, would put a cigar in his mouth, and he would say, I love it when a plan comes together. And here, look at this plan of God coming together in the Lord Jesus to bless the whole world through this good news, uh, good news of freedom from sin and death through the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus. It's a plan that connects us to God's plans from the beginning. Now, observation number two, let's move on here. Jesus commissions his people to make disciples. Jesus commissions his, disciple, his people to make disciples. We should Think about this, our most basic mission, the central imperative of what we do and of this passage is make disciples. What are we supposed to do? We make disciples. Now, you should understand that the phrase make disciples is not a dynamic word. It's a, it's a classroom word. Um, later, Paul's going to talk about being a herald. That's more exciting. Being an ambassador. Merv read that a few minutes ago. That's exciting. Paul talks about how we are soldiers uh, uh, um, on behalf of the gospel. That's true. But those are all more exciting words than make disciples. This is a school-type word. How many of you would be excited to know that it's Jesus' will for you to go back to school? Ugh. Some of you would like that, but you're the odd ducks in the room. You should know that, right? Hmm. It's a bit flat, but it does connect. It does connect with what Jesus has done and who he's talking to. He's talking to the disciples and he says, go make disciples. In other words, he says, go and do to others what I have done to you. A little bit of the golden rule going on there, right? Followers of Jesus help other followers of Jesus follow Jesus. That's what we do. And, and there are verbs that accompany this basic command of making disciples. There's three of them here. What does it mean to make disciples? Well, he says uh, three verbs. Going is the first one. Going. Now, my translation um, says uh, in verse 19, go. It makes an imperative. But the verb going is a, a participle. Here, we'll, we're talking about school. It's a participle that's subservient to the imperative, make disciples. Going. As you go, you could translate it that way, as you go, uh, but that almost makes it sound a little, a little too passive. Going, making disciples of all nations will demand that we go. Going is imperative. Going is, it's imperative to, to travel far and to learn a new language and a new culture if we're going to fulfill this commission, going. Then secondly, second verb, he says, baptizing. How do we make disciples? We baptize. Baptizing. And baptizing here, he's referring to this as the culmination of the evangelistic enterprise. Preach the good news. Tell people what Jesus has done so that they will turn and trust in him and believe in him and in his name find forgiveness of life, and, it, forgiveness and eternal life. And, and, then will be baptized as the public announcement of their faith in Jesus. There is in the Bible this close connection uh, between belief and baptism. When you believe, you should be baptized. 
And Jesus gives us this little bit of formula, kind of. I'm not sure that was his intention, but we have used it as a formula. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. Some of you know when uh, we do baptisms, uh, I ask the question, do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Yes. And are you trusting in him for forgiveness? Yes. Then on your profession of faith, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right from here. This passage, this, this formula that Jesus gave is so important for us in understanding the nature of who God is. This is one of the most explicit statements about the nature of God in Matthew, that God is one God who eternally exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's one God. There's one name. It's singular. And Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. When Jesus was baptized, the triune God was Matthew describes the work of the triune God. Jesus is being baptized. The Father says, this is my beloved Son whom I am well pleased, and the Holy Spirit descends. Um, this is, Jesus is placing himself here between the Father and the Spirit, which is why the disciples worshipped him in honor of the fact that he is worthy of their worship, the God-man, God in the flesh. Now, this formula also helps us think about God. That's true. It also helps us think about baptism itself. Baptize them in the name of. In the name of was in certain circumstances used as a banking term to identify who owned accounts. Who owns this bank account? Well, that bank account belongs to or it's in the name of this person. And when you get baptized, it is a public declaration. This person belongs to the triune God. He has taken ownership of this person. He belongs to the triune God. Now, this command presses us a little bit. We who are gospel people and who want our children to know and believe the gospel, this connection between belief and baptism, it, it, it presses us a little bit. I want you to imagine here a scenario where a seven-year-old person in the church comes to me and says, Pastor Joel, I want to be baptized. And I would say, this is what I'd say to them, I would say, that is awesome. I'm so excited to hear you tell me that. Tell me about it, why you want to be baptized. There's nothing I would rather do today than hear what you have to say about why you want to be baptized. So tell me. And they say, well, my whole life, my whole life, all seven years, my parents have been telling me that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. And they told me that I can have eternal life by trusting in him. And I do. Jesus is a savior. He died for my sins and I believe in him. And I would say that is awesome. I'm so happy to hear that. I would say you you probably you don't remember this because you were so young, but when you were like a few months old, your parents and I stood up on the platform of the church and I prayed and the whole church joined in and we prayed that you would come and trust in Jesus when you were very young and God answered prayer and you're, you trust in Jesus. I'm so excited to hear that. I'm so excited to hear that. And it is great. It is great that you want to be baptized. That's wonderful. Baptism is really important. In fact, it's, it's, it's so important here. I want you to think about something. 
when you get baptized, I want you to know for sure that your faith is your own. That you don't believe it just because your parents told you or because you heard about it over and over again at Sunday school or at Sparks or in uh, at Bible to school. I want you to know for sure that you believe it yourself. And when you're seven years old, that usually takes a little bit of time. There's nothing you can do about this, but it takes a little bit of time. It takes, well, you got to meet people who don't know Jesus and are living a different way and aren't aren't trusting in him. And I want you to see how they live and what they say and what they do. I want you to think about it. and, and, And if you choose differently than they do, it will be a sign to you that you trust for yourself. You may not understand it because I know that you, I I hear what you're saying about trusting in Jesus and you may not understand what I'm saying to you, but you will in a few years. And I want you to be baptized when you know for sure that yourself, you believe for yourself. So what I want you to do between now and then I want you to read the Bible. I want you to continue going to Sunday school and memorizing your verses and one. I want you to pray. I want you to get ready for that time that, that, that uh, following Jesus is going to be a little bit costly. I want you to get ready for that time right now. And then we'll think more carefully about baptism. That's what I would say to a seven-year-old. Here's what I'm saying to you who are in the room who are 16, 17, 18 years old. You have been a follower of Jesus for a long time because you've heard about it your whole life. And you have been exposed either through high school or in, uh, on the soccer team perhaps. Somehow you have been exposed to people, you have peers who are explicitly not followers of Jesus. And you recognize the different choices that they've made and you're not going to follow them because you're a follower of Jesus. And all of you have in your pocket or your purse, you have this little device that helps you text your friends and also opens the door to a world of evil. And you've had enough opportunity to uh, be exposed to that opportunity, this world of evil, that you know when you say no to it. You have experience of turning from the world of evil that is in this little device. If, you're, if that's your experience and you're 15, 16, 17 years old and it's become more apparent to you that you're a follower of Jesus and you don't and you have not talked to me about being baptized, you're out of step with Jesus. And if you're 50 years old and you recently became a follower of Jesus and you, you got a lot of mileage on your odometer and you've been through a lot of experiences and seen and done a lot of things and if you uh, you don't need the same uh, experiences that a seven or eight year old needs it's time for you to get after it if you refuse jesus would like to have a word with you baptizing going baptizing third here teaching notice he says teaching he says Teach them, verse 20, to obey everything I have commanded you. Now, it's important. What's the end of this teaching? To obey everything I've commanded you. The the end of the teaching is not a diploma. It's not a notebook filled with facts. It is a life filled with light. We are not after making converts or confessors, though that's where we got to start, right? Everybody starts as a convert, a confessor. Uh, We are after obeyers. 
That's what we're supposed to do. Make obeyers. You can see Jesus' divine nature even in this passage and that he directs people to his commands. Teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. <laughs> Paul, what about like Moses? No, teach them to obey everything I have commanded you because he's the God-man. All of his commands in the gospels, all of his commands in the epistles through the apostles, all of his commands in the Old Testament through the prophets, they're Jesus' commands. Teaching. Make disciples. That's the basic uh, impulse here in this passage, the basic imperative, make disciples. Now we need to pick up the pace, and we're going to talk about uh, observation number three here. The Great Commission is for churches. The Great Commission is for churches. This commission is part of the thought process, the strategy of the church. It's not for independent operators. It's not for individual Christians to think about. It's for local congregations. Now, how do you know that? It's not in the passage you're asking me that. How do you know that? There's no word church. Is, the church isn't even mentioned here. How do you know that? Well, remember the rest of the gospel of Matthew. And in Matthew chapter 16 and Matthew chapter 18, who does Jesus authorize to recognize those who are believers? The church. They have the authority to bind true believers to themselves, and they have the responsibility to loose hypocrites from the church. Who has the authority under Jesus to recognize? Who has the authority under Jesus to baptize people upon their profession of their faith? Local congregations. It's how the, Apostle Paul, uh, the apostles operated in the book of Acts. Remember in Acts chapter 2, Peter preached that great sermon. And at the end of his sermon in Acts chapter 2, he said, those who accepted his message were baptized. And about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Well, added to what number? A number of whose, where's, what's? The church. The local church in Jerusalem. It's the pattern everywhere Paul goes in the book of Acts. He preaches the gospel. He forms churches. A baptized believer without a vital connection to a local church is a creature the New Testament does not understand. I wonder if this strikes you as odd that Jesus entrusts this to local churches, people like you and me. Oh. Uh, we have to confess we have a mixed track record in our success in this commission and how we've done it. Sometimes churches are more bent on, uh, on uh, making disciples of Western food and Western dress and Western customs than of the gospel. We have that track record. It's imperfect. And yet, the, the imperfection here is something that Jesus seemed to recognize and understand. Verse 16 says, the 11 disciples went to Galilee. 11 disciples. Dale Bruner says that the word 11 here is a word with a limp in Matthew 28. Because it's supposed to be 12. It's supposed to be 12. It's not supposed to be 11 11 isn't right. 11 isn't whole. 11 isn't what Jesus started with. It's, eh. I have a, a, a piece of luggage. It's a rolling suitcase, and it's got a, a crack in one of the wheels. So whenever you pull it along the sidewalk, it goes kathump, 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 kathump. It's annoying. What sound does the church make? Hopefully very loud glad songs of worship. But if you listen carefully in every congregation, you'll hear it. Kathump, 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 kathump. 
Jesus entrusted this to a group of men with a limp. Verse 17, he says, when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Oh my goodness, they doubted. What are they doubting? I wish Matthew wrote about this. Are they doubting the resurrection? I don't think so. Are they doubting uh, that it's Jesus there? I don't think so. The word doubted maybe could be better translated hesitated. They're just not sure. What's going on here? And Jesus so kindly does not look at them and say, listen, you guys, get your act together and I'll be back in a few months to tell you what to do. All right, straighten things out. He said, instead, verse 18, Jesus came to them and approached them and and Jesus came near. There is in this passage already this understanding that Jesus is entrusting this very important commission to imperfect people, local congregations. Churches are baptizing communities, they're teaching communities. We worship, we fellowship, we evangelize, we teach, we teach. We strategize to do this, to make disciples. It's the necessary purpose behind everything that we do. Within the means that God has prescribed, we make disciples. It's easier to forget that as the years go by and as schedules move and patterns go. It can be easy to to succumb to thinking that our purpose is to staff programs or to uphold traditions. Uh, Why do we have women's Bible studies? Because it's the spring, and we always have women's Bible studies in the spring. No, we have women's Bible studies to make disciples. Why do we have Man U? Not to blow things up. We have Man U to make disciples. Why do we have Sunday school classes? To make disciples. And if there's things that we're doing that are not helping to make disciples, we should think about them seriously. Observation number four, Jesus told us to focus on unreached people groups. Jesus told us to focus on unreached people groups. This is something I learned from David Platt at Together for the Gospel last week. He spoke about this passage. I'm going to borrow heavily from him. This is an easy observation to overlook in this passage. The word here, he says, verse 19, go and make disciples of all nations, And when we think of nations, we usually think of a geographic um, bordered place. Uh, The United Nations is made up of geographic bordered places. But the word nations here is not referring to those political entities. It's referring to ethnic groups, groups uh, of people united by language and a culture. And within a nation, there may be many uh, ethnic groups. One of our um, missions agencies that we know of used to be called New Tribes Missions, and they changed their name to Ethnos 360 in light of this Greek word ethnos here, translated nations. Notice Jesus says to go to all nations he does not say reach all people. He says reach, to spread the message to all nations. Uh, let me illustrate this for you from the distinction from uh, the, Paul's letter to Romans, to the Romans. In Romans chapter 15, Paul is writing to the church there about his plans to visit them. And look what he says in Romans 15, 17. He says, therefore, I glory in Christ Jesus in my service to God. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I have said and done, by the power of signs and wonders through the power of the Spirit of God. So from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. It has always been, here we go, 
It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. Rather, as it is written, those who were not told about him will see and those who have not heard will understand. This is why I've often been hindered from coming to you. Then he says, right, I go to places where Christ has not been known. And then look what he says, verse 23. But now that there is no more place for me to work in these regions. And since I've been longing for many years to visit you, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. I hope to see you while passing through and to have you assist me on my journey there after I have enjoyed your company for a while. Now, from the one hand, when Paul says, look, there's no more work for me to do in this region. On the one hand, that's almost laughable. Really, Paul? Like there's nobody else in Thessalonica who needs to hear the gospel? There's nobody else in Ephesus who's not a Christian? There's nobody else in Philippi who hasn't heard uh, the good news? Really? Come on, Paul. There's a lot of work here for you to do. No, no, no. Paul says, I'm going to the places that haven't heard the gospel. Uh, there's a church in Ephesus. They, they can do their work of making disciples there. I'm going to the unknown, un, uh, uh, unrecognized, um, unreached peoples. That's why I think it's not right to say that this commission was fulfilled by the disciples in the first generation because he does use all nations. Whether you heard of them or not, make it your goal to get there and, 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 and tell them about Jesus. There are three billion people on the planet that have no opportunity to hear the gospel of Christ. They live in hard-to-get-to places. They live in countries where it's illegal to preach the gospel, where you can't enter as a Christian worker. And taking the gospel there will be costly. Mark Dever says, there's no, no such thing as a closed country. There's only places on the planet where it's difficult to preach your second sermon. So because all nations, hard to reach places, hard to get to places. So we have to strategize. We might do something like uh, supporting a Christian worker who lives in Boston near a major university of the world and, and places, hard to reach places, closed places will send their brightest and best to these research universities in order for them to become scientists and we'll put a Christian there who will befriend them, help them live in America and teach them about Jesus so we can send back to their countries, not just educated scientists, but faithful Christians. That would be shrewd. That would be shrewd. Wise as serpents, harmless as doves, right? Hmm. We'll have to strategize. We'll have to think about this. We'll have to maybe start English schools in hard-to-reach places. We'll maybe have to start businesses in hard-to-reach places so that we can send Christians there. Where are we going next, unreached peoples? Do we have anybody in our church, any friends, do you know, of this church uh, who are living in hard-to-reach places? Who's, who are we sending next? Maybe not you. We can't send everyone. Maybe your children or your grandchildren can go. Maybe if you can't go, then a lot of your money can go to keep somebody in a hard-to-reach place. Maybe uh, you can get on a prayer list of someone in a hard-to-reach place and call down heaven in their ministry. Unreached peoples and unreached places. Observation number five. 
the Great Commission is propelled by the universal power and perpetual presence of Jesus. The universal power and the perpetual presence of Jesus. Those are phrases I borrowed from David Turner. Did you notice the commands in the middle and then bracketed around them, Jesus makes statements about himself, make disciples in the middle. Before that, he says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Authority is really important in Matthew. Jesus' authority is. Jesus has authority to teach Moses. He has the authority to heal. He has the authority to cast out demons. He's got authority. And the resurrection is this grand announcement of Jesus' authority. All authority in heaven and on earth. And if you're going to go to all nations, you better go with the confidence that Jesus has authority there. There's no place in China or Saudi Arabia or uh, India where you can set your foot over which Jesus does not reign. And you go with this level of confidence in his supremacy everywhere. And then after the command to make disciples, Jesus says, I am with you always. You won't go alone. Matthew begins, chapter 1, who's this baby who's going to be born? Well, his name is going to be called Emmanuel, God with us. And here at the end of Matthew, I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. Wherever you go to make disciples, you're going to have to go confident that Jesus reigns and that he's with you. Because of who he is and what he's done, we go. We make disciples. We do it here. We think about doing it everywhere in the world. It's what Jesus commanded us to do. Who's in? Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and we are grateful to you for this clear, clear call from the Lord Jesus to go and make disciples. Lord, um, we were singing a few minutes ago about how costly this endeavor is, that sometimes we suffer from cowardice and sometimes we're just too very comfortable and sometimes we are uh, hindered by our own prejudice or our own fear. And yet this command is here, Lord, we come before you asking you that you would make us faithful and diligent in making disciples here in Lancaster County. That you would give us, um, that we would be diligent and ruthless with our uh, schedules in this work, that you would help us as a congregation to trim the fat of unnecessary things that distract us from this, this commission. And Lord, um, raise up from our congregation more people who will go that we can pray for and support, even if it's our children and our grandchildren. Take them for your service far away for Christ's sake. Lord, help us. Oh, help us. We pray these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, Amen.